All right, hopefully you made your way. As we're reading through the Word of God, we are in the Anchored series. And in this Anchored series, we're reading through the Gospel of Mark this week. And the title of our message is Engine of Faith. What releases the power of God in your life? What releases the power of God in your family? The only element that we can connect with God is through trusting him, relying in him, and believing in him. And this is really the the powerhouse engine inside of you. Not a list of rules of do's and don'ts, but a living God living inside of you, encouraging you in the faith and his promises that you can lay hold of God in the most difficult of situations, whatever it might be. It might be something small, it might be something big. The uh, famous George Mueller, who trusted God literally to feed thousands of children in these orphanages that he built back in the day in the 1800s in Bristol, England, he would trust God for this massive amount of food to feed these kids every day by faith. And yet one day, as he was spending some time in the south of France, he was with another Christian and they were talking and, and it was just kind of a relaxed day and he was sitting here writing with a pen. And in that moment, his friend saw him close his eyes as if he was going into prayer. And he said, George, what are you praying about? We're just sitting here relaxing. He goes, my pen stopped working. And so I'm praying that the Lord will get my pen to start working again. He said, you're praying for small things like your pen working and you've trusted God for millions of pounds to feed all these kids. It's not just the micro in our lives and the macro, it's everything in between. God cares about what's going on in your life, in your heart. And isn't it a beautiful thing when we come and we can trust that God cares in such a way. He cares about all the dimensions. If you care about it, he cares about it, small or big. And as we look at the engine of faith, we're gonna see these pictures as faith is released in different circumstances and situations that you might identify with, that might be a promise for the future that you're getting ready to go into. And so we're gonna stand and read the first 11 verses. Stand with me, we're gonna read Mark chapter two. First 11 verses as we look at the engine of faith. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he sat. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Let's stop there. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would open our hearts as we come to you with the the paralyzed areas of our life, the shriveled areas of our life, the, the things that deep down inside we're struggling with here today. Lord, we come to you. We've we've heard you're in the house. We've heard you're here and you care and you want to speak your word to our hearts. So Lord, would you speak now by your spirit and by your grace to each and every person that's come today with a word that is fitly spoken like apples of gold and settings of silver for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. First, we see the faith to care. 
Why does faith care? You see, there's something that's groping inside of us for help, for longing. And in an ancient world, when you have a friend that is paralyzed, it's not like you can go to the rehab center, you can't go to the doctor, you can't go to the neurologist. You have to find a physician. And in those ancient times, faith was laid hold of, obviously, much quicker. You might call the doctor. You might make an appointment. You might go to the specialist. And so where have you put your faith? No, there's nothing wrong with that. I thank God for all the medical services. I'm just trying to compare in their day. They had nowhere to call. They had nowhere to go. They didn't know what to do. And so in this circumstance, it says that when Jesus was in the house, there was no longer to receive him, and he preached the word to them. When you hear that Jesus is in the house, the place is going to be packed. It's going to, this is true for the churches that I've started. As soon as people discover that the hero of our story, the one that is alive and well, that rose from the dead and is here to touch your life by the power of his grace, the power of his forgiveness, the power of his love, the power of supernatural power to change you, the house gets full. Pretty soon you have to go to two services. Pretty soon you have to go to three services. Pretty soon you got the overflow. Pretty soon you're live streaming and you're just saying, stay at home, we have no room for you, right? And there's, there's no live streaming. So these four friends, they first hear that Jesus is in the house. And when they hear that Jesus is in the house, obviously his reputation has preceded him that he touches and heals broken lives. That's his reputation, that he touches hurting broken people. Churches are not, not country clubs to talk about spiritual things. They're hospitals for broken lives, right? We are the emergency room for souls. And the triage is, you know, what, what's the most severe situation in the room? The Bible says that God is near the brokenhearted. Those who have the most acute awareness of their need opens the door of faith for God to draw nearer to you. Because when you're self-sufficient, you got it wired, you got this handled, you got the money in the bank, you're healthy, you're strong, you got the job, you got food in the coverage, you don't need God, you got you, right? But then life gets too big. So you lose the job, you lose the money, you lose the spouse, the kids are out of control. All of a sudden, life gets too big for you. That's why I always encourage godly Christian parents that have children that have went wayward, that life will get too big for them. And when life gets too big for them, they know where the answers are. Jesus is the answer. These four friends have a paralyzed friend and their faith moves them to care. You know that faith is working when I care about somebody else and not just myself. Right? When I start loving God, Jesus is in the house, I'm drawn to God and I'm drawn to others. I wanna be a servant. And these guys pick up this guy in his paralyzed condition and they arrive at the house. They're so excited. Hey, we're gonna bring our friend to Jesus. And they show up and you can't get through the door. There's no room. There's no overflow. There's, there's no place to get access because they need a face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus. So not only does their faith care, but it's daring enough to think that they can get their friend to Jesus. And then they're determined. When they come to the full house, they're determined. They don't let a small thing like the crowd deter them from getting to Jesus. It's very much like the blind men, the two blind men. They hear that Jesus is going by and they say, uh, Jesus, son of David. They start crying out and the crowd tells them, shut up, you're bothering the savior. And Jesus stops and he says, bring them to me. 
They did not let the crowd stop them. When the crowd said, shut up, leave Jesus alone. They were determined. And faith has a determination. In this case, determination turns into digging because they said, well, if we're really gonna get to him, we gotta get up on the roof, we gotta dig a hole through this dude's roof. Now, I don't know if you've had anybody dig a hole through your roof recently, right? You got a home Bible study going on. There's, you know, the neighbors are complaining, the cars are down through the parking lot and there's no room. And pretty soon the sheetrock starts opening up and here's four smiling faces with lowering their buddy down the hole. Now, I don't know who is hosting this Bible study, but that had to tick them off. I open up my home to the Lord and now I've got some damage here. (laughs) But they're determined. They can patch up the roof. But the friends were more determined for Jesus to patch up their friend. So once he is lowered down before them, in verse five, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, wouldn't it be freaky to hang out with Jesus? He's, he's listening to your thoughts all the time. Right now, some of you are having a thought. Uh, in and out, five guys. In and out, five guys. <laughs> right, you're not here. You're not really present. You're not tuned in. But... but Imagine anytime you're with Jesus, he knows what you're thinking. He, he, he answers not your words or your actions. He answers your thoughts. And he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I would say so, right? This story, I think the four friends, they have a goal. That is that Jesus physically heal their friend, right? He's a paralyzed. And if you're paralyzed in the ancient world, You're going to be a beggar or you're going to be a burden on the family. You can't contribute in any way. And they think, hey, we're bringing Jesus. And I think when this word came, son, your sins are forgiven you, the fours, their countenance must have fell. Like we brought him here for you to heal his legs. And you want to talk about forgiving his sins. And then the Pharisees, the scribes, they they begin to reason in their hearts, hey, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus uses this opportunity to tell them, hey, I am God in human flesh and I have authority I have authority to forgive sins, and I'm letting you know this. But his friends are worried about him walking, but Jesus takes care of priorities first. What's your greatest need in this room? If you're a paralyzed man even, what's your greatest need in this room? To be forgiven of your sins. Without, you might have your legs and be on your way to hell. Lots of people have their legs and are on the way to hell. They have their arms, they have their thoughts, they're doing their own thing, they have no relationship with God. Jesus deals with the first things first. And yes, he'll get to the legs. (laughs) But first, he wants to heal this man that he might experience forgiveness. When you and I realize that my greatest need is to close the gap that sin has caused between me and God. This is the problem, right? Why can... An unregenerate man or woman not approach God. 
because your sins have separated you from him. My sins have separated me from him. So Jesus takes care of this first. Hey, you can have your sins forgiven. Only Jesus can forgive your sins. Maybe you're here today and you wandered in and you're wondering if this God that everybody here is talking about can help you with some physical needs that you have in your life. Well, let's deal with the first thing. First, give your life to Jesus who loves you and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead that you might be forgiven of your sins and then the Lord will take care of the next thing, which is really your need. But the Pharisees and the scribes, their reasoning, Jesus says something very logical. And if you think with him for a moment, it all makes sense. He says, which is easier? There is no, if I say your sins are forgiven, that's pretty easy because there has to be no physical healing. There's no manifestation. That's an invisible transaction. Isn't forgiveness invisible? It's invisible. You can't see it. If I say your sins are forgiven, Jesus said, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? They're both supernatural in order, but Jesus, after he takes care of the first, he takes care of the second. And then the friends who cared enough to be daring enough, to be determined enough to bring him and Jesus saw their faith, they have their experience. Not only on top of the physical healing, this man left spiritually whole because he had come into a right relationship with God. And that should be our ultimate goal, what we're praying for. Yes, people in our lives have other challenges, but primarily the goal is to see them come to Christ, experience forgiveness. People ask me all the time, hey, Pastor Rick, how do I minister to this person? They're really in a, a terrible uh, moral lifestyle and I don't know how to navigate it. And I said, well, what do you think you should do? Well, I want to somehow talk them to them about how they're in their immoral situation, their sin, sexual sin, whatever it might be. And I said, that's not what you want to talk about. You want to talk about the good news. Share that Jesus loves, share about the hope that's in Jesus, about his good news of death, burial, and resurrection. And when Jesus saves them, he'll clean up the moral part. Christians are always trying to deal with the symptoms. You have a friend at work. He's got a foul mouth. And somehow you start, you learn all the Bible verses about not having filthy language come out of your mouth and you start peppering him with those. Okay, so maybe he cleans up his mouth around you for the next three months. Is he any closer to Jesus yet? No. He's cleaned up his mouth and he's still on his way to hell. He's no longer a potty mouth, but he's still going into a eternity separated from God. But if you dealt with his relationship with Jesus, Jesus will change him from the inside out. Let me just ask you, do you clean a fish before you catch it? You ever chase a fish around the stream with a knife? I'm going to try to clean you, trying to clean you up. That's what Christians are going. People go all over the valley. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to clean. No, first they have to be caught in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus will clean them up from the inside out. Let him transform them. You are not the Holy Spirit. I know some of you think you are. You wives especially think you're the Holy Spirit of your husbands. I am the Spirit of the Lord, you know, speaking to you. No, the Spirit of God can do what you could never do. So Jesus demonstrates this in real time for his friends and everybody is blessed and the scribes and the Pharisees who do not have faith to energize their life, they stay in this awkward place as we see them in the next picture as well. You're always gonna have the detractors. Don't think because your life is filled with faith and it's propelling through life that everybody's gonna be excited for you. Is your family excited that you're walking with Jesus? Maybe not. 
Are your coworkers, is your best friends thankful you got saved last year? Probably not. Are the people at work happy that you radiate the love of Jesus? Probably not. So we always have detractors. There's, there's always the trolls. Kind of trolls are a thing today, right on the internet. The trollers, they're always trolling. The trollers, they're out there. And the trollers are like these little parasites that are going through life trying to tear down anything that's good. They're trying to rob your joy and suck your joy, little joy suckers. The trolls. But there's not only the trolls before we have the trolls, the followers, they have to interact with the trolls. You gotta figure it out. So faith to follow in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinner to repentance. Jesus is preaching, and as he's moving through life, he's collecting disciples. As he's moving along, he goes by this tax booth. Now, the IRS has never been a popular institution, especially around April 15th. If you, are an IRS, if you work for the IRS and you're here today, you're not handing out cards at cocktail parties. You're not like, I work for the IRS, right? People that collect taxes. But on top of that, here is Levi, who is in the tribe of the, the, the uh, priest, tribe of Levi, to serve the Lord. And he has sold out a life of serving God for a life of connecting with Rome to get rich. Tax collectors would bid on a tax booth. Hey, I'll give the Roman government this much. And the Roman government said, yes, you're gonna pay us this much, but whatever you can bilk or worse, out of the people above that, that's all yours, man. That's why tax collectors were looked at as traitors to the Jewish people. That's why they were hated because they were constantly overtaxing the people and they were getting rich. And so Jesus is coming along to one of the most hated people in that neck of the woods. He says, hey, you know, this will be exciting. This will be exciting to bring you onto the team. Levi, come follow me. So Levi says, you know, I've had it with this tax collector. And I've, I'm ostracized from my neighbors. I'm ostracized from uh, my community. Nobody likes me anymore. The only people that like me is other tax collectors, right? Because birds of a feather flock together, don't they? People that are miserable find each other, no matter what. I've had parents through the years say, I've, my child is 16, we're at, they're at this school, and they've got a bad group of friends, so we're going to move five states away to a new school. I said, save your money, save your time, because when they get there, they're going to find the same group with different names and faces. Why? Because that's the space their heart's in. That's the space, that's the dark spot that they're in. So you can move all over the place, you're going to find the same people, right? Just the way it works. And, and so here these tax collectors come, and Jesus is in the midst. Now, there's anything more awkward 
then the savior of the world, as he's ministering to people who need what? Forgiveness. They need ministry. Do you know in the first six months of your conversion, you will affect more people for the gospel in, for the rest of your life than at any other time in your life, unless you go into ministry or something. It's because all your friends, when you first get saved in that first six months, all your friends are non-Christians, correct? All my friends were non-Christians. We were heathen dogs. We were terrible. And yet we were all terrible together. <laughs> this, this was the common thing we, theme we had going on. We were all the same terrible. We were all the same kind of corrupt individuals. But then when I became a Christian and my older brother became a Christian, and now there's two of us, kind of a two by two, like a, a Simon and Andrew, a James and John type of thing. The Brown brothers got saved, though people thought it was a vicious rumor. It couldn't be true. These two are gonna bust hell wide open, seriously. And they can't be saved. We were the people that said, nobody... They would say, these guys are never going to be Christians. And here we are Christians. And then we start sharing with all our friends. And we started sharing with our friends and hanging out with our friends. Now, granted, when we're start, you get saved and you're sharing with your friends, you're sharing with your friends as they're smoking a joint, as they're drinking the drink, as they're partying away. And they're looking at you, Rick, I know, I, I know that you're, you and this Jesus thing is cool. Just, it's not for me. You know, and, and this is my world, right? People are getting high around me. They're getting drunk around me. And I'm trying to share with them about the love of Jesus because pretty soon we filled up a whole pew with all of our friends, my brother and I, that were either getting saved, at least curious, and those who said, you guys are nuts and we never want to talk to you again. Everybody, you lose a lot of friends, you gain a few friends and some close family members. Levi's in that place, and every, he's used to. He's the open house. Hey, open house for broken, messed up humanity. This is where we hang out right here. This is the house fellowship of those who are unwanted by the community. And Jesus is right in the midst of them. Is it awkward? I mean, if you see me, in some restaurant and there's a bar section and I'm sitting there with five guys because somebody's a new Christian and he's invited me there to hang out and share with the faith with four other people or you're here, I'm at this you know, gathering because I get invited to awkward places. And for me, I'm an awkward person, so it's cool, right? I do awkward as long as I love Jesus in the situation and I had to, in the early days, have to avoid it like the plague because I would go back there kind of into that lifestyle. Sometimes you got to pull away. And then when you get strong, I used to dread them coming around because I'd fall on my face when they came around. And then as I got strong, they dreaded that I came around because I'm sharing the love of Jesus and strength. And you have to know where you're at in what season. But Jesus is here and the house is filled up. Have you ever had a Levi party? You ever had a Matthew party? You just invited a bunch of people. Maybe it's a block party. Maybe it's a neighborhood party. Maybe it's people you don't even know. Hey, just invite a group of people from work. They're going to come to your backyard. You're going to have a barbecue. You go, oh, I don't know. That sounds so scary. You don't know what they're going to think, what they're going to believe, and maybe they're into this. Maybe, maybe they are. It could be. Did you realize that ministry is kind of messy? It's kind of awkward. And the Christian life is not isolation, it's insulation, meaning in the midst of situations, the Lord is with me, and I don't have to succumb to their lifestyle, but I can be there as salt and light without judgment, because I used to be just like them. It's fascinating to me that the comforts of today are the Pharisees of tomorrow. You got saved last year, and now you are condescending and snooty and look down your nose at 
every person that's lost and they got a potty mouth and you look and go, oh, but he's like, dude, I knew you a year ago. You were just like them. Well, all of a sudden you're, you're so much better than them. Saved people are just one beggar showing the other beggars where the bread is. You know better than them. They're lost. You were lost. They're broken. You were broken. They're sick with sin, and you were sick with sin. Because the beautiful thing is Jesus said, I came as a physician for sick people. Did you know that? How many of you, I know they have this, they have this annual wellness visit that's built into my insurance plan. I don't do wellness visits. If, if I have to see the doctor, it's because something's wrong, right? Now, I know that, well, we have preventative, that's not to, uh, uh, some medical worker's gonna come up to me after this. And I think it's great. You wanna do the wellness thing, you want them to scope your lower end at 50, God bless you, whatever you want them to do. But the reality is, is that unless something's wrong, we usually don't go to the doctor, right? I mean, you just go to the doctor. I'm just going to give the doctor money. That's what I like to do. No, I go because I have an issue. I go because I have a problem. But Jesus said, I didn't come for those who are well or they don't need a doctor. If you don't think you are sick with sin, then you see no need for Jesus. You have no need for a savior. If you're not drowning in the deep end, you have no need for a lifeguard. You have to first see your need. And that, that's the awakening of faith that there's something inside of me that is unfulfilled. There's something inside of me that's broken. There's something inside of me that I need to reconnect somehow with God and it's not happening. But you're gonna have those trollers in that situation. Those who troll things, look at this person in that situation. And you may not know the context of what's going on, but realize that Jesus went through this. Jesus said, this generation, and it's just like our generation today. Jesus said, this generation's like, um, we came and played a happy song and you didn't dance. And then we sang a sad song and you didn't cry, you didn't mourn. He said, it's the same. John the Baptist came, he neither, came neither eating nor drinking, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking at gatherings like this. And you say, he's a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus said, you can't win with the people. You can't win with the trolls. So when people want to get in a bickering match with somebody that trolls, I'm like, don't give them the satisfaction. Right? It, it, it's a waste of time. Because you cannot please them if I am very strict and austere in my Christianity, people will feel, ooh, you're too holy. And if I'm more common and I'm there with some people sharing the gospel as they do in Great Britain at the pub over a beer, oh, he's so compromised, he's the drunk because he drank a beer. How do you win with trollers? You never win with trollers. You just simply realize that our job is to facilitate opportunities to touch people that are sick, to introduce them to a great physician. I have a friend that recently uh, was diagnosed with a form of cancer 
And because of a mutual friend that had a few years before, he connected him to the best specialist at UCLA and in San Diego for two different treatments. And without this relationship, but you see, he had been sick, so he knew the doctor to bring his sick friends to the very best in the country because he had already researched it a few years before that. I've researched it. And Jesus is the best physician for your soul, for your marriage, for your kids, for your family for anything you're ever gonna experience. Faith to follow Jesus. And then the celebration, as we see in verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but, they, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days." The faith to celebrate or to know, understand the season that you're in, obviously, if you're a part of a wedding party this week, is not probably the best week to have a seven-day fast. Do you think? Right? You're the, uh, you're the groom. You've got to set up everything. You've got to make, you're the maid of honor. Hey, let's just fast all the way through your wedding. It's like, that, well, that's the not, not the right week. Now, the week after your wedding, you actually may want to fast and fix everything. But before then, it's a time or a season to feast. And that's what these disciples, they were so disciplined. John the Baptist's disciples were so disciplined in dis fasting. And they looked at Jesus and Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting at all. I mean, they're, they're at the Matthew party. They're eating, they're having a drink, they're doing whatever. And he's like, hey, you, you guys are not living like us. And Jesus said, yeah, but I'm the bridegroom. They, we have about a three-year ministry here. And Jesus did fast. You remember at the, in chapter one of this book, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It's not like he doesn't know how to fast. And he said, as soon as I'm taken from the disciples and I go to heaven, there will be times of fasting. I fast and pray about different things. It is that season. But to know the right season, there are times that I've, uh, I, I, uh, at one time I decided I was gonna fast and I forgot these family members were coming. And, you know, the family members are coming and we're going to have dinner. I mean, it's just like, what else? Stick in the mud because you're not eating with us. We're only here for three days, four days. And I realized, this is not, what am I doing? I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to pause fast, push the pause button, have fun with my family, and then I can pick it up another time. The faith to know the proper timing for things. And then we have the faith to innovate. And this is the hardest thing. You know, the most dirty word in the Christian church is change. Oh, the most deadly words a church ever says is we've always done it that way. It says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Jesus' illustration as he's working with the, the new work of grace that he's bringing to people, it is in this tension of the scribes and the Pharisees, and uh, they may not have hardening of the arteries, but they have hardening of the categories, okay? And the hardening of the categories in church life especially is one that here Jesus comes in with this grace to touch people's lives, and people are still stuck in this rigid legal system. And Jesus is want, he's bringing something new. And just like, and I mean, we, we don't really live, we, we throw clothes away. But back in the days of patching things, if you put uh, a, uh, 
an old patch, or excuse me, a new patch of Levi and cut it out and put it on an old one, it's going to shrink and tear apart. Or also, because of fermentation, the wine swells wineskins. And if they're old and brittle, then they'll just burst. So you have to have the new wineskins for new wine. And you have to have new garments in this situation. What is Jesus telling us? He's saying that in the grace of God, there are new things and fresh things that I want to do with my people. But rather than trying to force it onto those who don't want it, just find vessels that are open to the new. Do you know it's, it's easier to go start a new church than it is to go come and take over an old work with a bunch of tradition and history? Do you know it's a hard thing when you start changing music? Music is the most radical dividing issue in churches. Because if you are over 65, it's just not right to worship with anything but an organ. Where's the organ? And then where's your hymnal? I want the hymns. Hymns have a little cadence. Now, I love the hymns, but I'm not going to reach the 20-year-old with hymns unless they've had a little refresh. Because we sang one today, an older hymn, the very last song, but it's been redone. It's been refreshed. Music is the thing that so many people have an issue with. It's too loud. How comes there's drums up there? You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a devil in that electric guitar somehow. You know, devils that have the whammy bar. It's just a whammy must be satanic. You can't have a whammy bar up there. But every generation, every generation, the most fluid or uh, unifying issue is the style of music that each generation goes through, right? It's about a 15 to 20 year gap. Some of you grew up with the Beatles and that style of music. And I grew up in the best era possible, which is the rock and roll of the 80s, right? The 70s and the 80s. Basically, you know, growing up with this kind of uh, hard rock and music. That's why uh, as you see the development of music in the church, the church is always the latest to innovate in any community. Always. Because they're usually about 15 people with gray hair away from closing the doors. One obituary at a time. Because this is the thing you have to figure out. How do we innovate? How do we never change? The, the thing that never changes is the word of God and the gospel. As long as you don't change the gospel and you don't change the word of God, everything else up is up for grabs. The style of music and your approach. Here we are, very casual. Look at you guys. Some of you in blue jeans. I know there's some flip-flops in the room. This would have been unheard of 50 years ago. You go to church in a suit and tie. You gotta have your tie on. You gotta put on your Sunday best. There's never a verse in all the Bible that talks about your Sunday best, but it's been crammed down our throat for a whole generation. <laughs> people that tell me, hey, why don't you encourage people to wear a suit and tie? I said, well, Jesus never made a big deal about suit and ties. They, did, they wore robes. Should I encourage everybody to wear robes in our, in our Dana? Should we put the guys in skirts, put them in kilts? I, I don't know what you want. And there's, there's, there's this idea, I said, I mean, I've had this conversation so many times about the dress, about the music, 
about why, wah, it always reminds me of the Charlie Brown whenever the adults talk. Well, how come we never? And why we I had one precious friend, and, and, and we were friends through the years. I mean, for 30 years, her name was Angela, and she came from old school, and she would come up to me on Sunday morning, shake my hand, Pastor Rick, and you're preaching the word of God. It's so great. But unless you start doing hymns, Pastor Rick, I'm leaving. And I said, Angela, we're the only church in town that doesn't. I said, every church in town does hymns. I said, God bless you. I love you. You're going to get fed over there. Go over there. Go over there. I'd give her three or four suggestions. Other churches, go over there because you don't have to change them. You're trying to change us because I'm trying to reach the 20-year-old because this is what I've discovered. The music if the 20-year-olds love the music, they stick around. And older people hate the music, but they love that the church is filled with young people. So they go, well, look at all the young people. This is cool. I hate this music, but it's cool to see the young people. The opposite is not true. If we do the music of the old people, the 20-year-olds are not mature enough to ever come back. They come once and they go, no, thank you. It's like a, it's like a funeral dirge in there. And they all look like one step away from dying anyway. All a bunch of old people. How do you stay fresh? How do you stay relevant? Every church that's healthy should be a multi-generational church. The nursery should be jam-packed. Ours is at the service. And our sunshiners group, which is the seniors, should be packed. Everywhere in between should be full. The people that have the young hipster, you know, I'm in the skinny jeans. I've got my laser light show and my cool laptop. And we're all a church of 25-year-olds. Well, God bless them. I mean, they're ministering to their group, but they don't have the age and the gray hair of stability, and so they can lose their way. They're really cool. They're really hip. But when you bring it all together, like Jesus says here, hey, just put new wine into new wineskins that contain it to expand and to contract. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. That's not a Bible verse, but it's a cool statement. Okay. <laughs> Lastly, we conclude with faith to rest in verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do you, they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest." And also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This beautiful story about faith to rest. How do you rest? Do you realize that those who would basically, you know, the Lord said, honor the Sabbath day, the sixth day. Work your brains out for six days and then take day, one day on the Sabbath rest. From sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath and just rest. But do you know that they, they came up with basically 24 chapters of how to do that? You had to come back from the Sabbath from being exhausted from all of the things they told you to do about rest rather than just rest. Why do we have to put big burdens on people? That's what religion does. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain field. I grew up, and my, grand, my father and my grandfather were custom combiners, which means they harvested wheat, they harvested barley, they harvested corn, and they harvested beans. 
So they had these big, massive Ferguson um, combines. And so we would go to the fields when we thought the farmer would call my dad and say, hey, I think we're ready. And my dad would go out and we would walk through the field and we'd just grab heads of grain and you rub it like this. You blow the chaff, you pop it in your mouth and you chew it. And it becomes like gum. It's just like, it's kind of a fun thing. And this is what these disciples were actually hungry. They're walking, like, it's like a snack on a stick, you know, just take it. And they're walking through the grain fields and they're eating this. But the, law, they, the Pharisees said, you're, you're harvesting. No, they're not harvesting. They're just having a snack. They're having food. And so Jesus takes them to a story that should have really silenced them. David's on the run because Saul's going to kill him. He ends up at the uh, house of the Lord, the tabernacle. Abiathar's there. And he says, hey, do you have any food? I got some men with me and we, we had to leave in a hurry. He was really running for his life. And, uh, and he goes, well, we have the showbread, which is 12 loaves of showbread. And, and they put new loaves on every week. And, and you, I guess if the guys have kept themselves from women for three days, it, it's not... The, the showbread, only priests were supposed to eat it. So it was unlawful for them to eat it. But Abiathar, human need trumped the law. That's what Jesus said. Human need trumps your strict legal requirements. And so they, they all ate that showbread. And Jesus said, don't you remember that Bible story? I mean, aren't you, didn't you guys grow up in Sunday school? Aren't you Bible students? And they, they totally missed it. I'm fascinated with religious people and the way they love to heap up burdens on people. They love to build up these burdens. It can be around the Sabbath. It can be around the day of rest. It can be around all kinds of things. People will give me their list of things. I'm like, well, God bless you in your list if that's what you want. You want that list? I just, on my day of rest, I, I just want to rest. And the ultimate rest, the Sabbath, was given to us for. Out of the Ten Commandments, all ten of the commandments, save one, are all reinstituted as the moral law in the New Testament. All, all nine of them. The only one that is not given to us is to observe the Sabbath. If you thought you were coming to church on the Sabbath, this is not the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day, the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we meet on Sundays because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So we come to church. It's the Lord's day. So this is not the Sabbath, first of all. And as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection in our life, the real Sabbath, Jesus was the fulfillment of Sabbath when he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who have burdens, come to me. I'll give you rest for my, your soul. Come to me. When I come to the Lord, I enter into the ultimate rest of the Sabbath that I'm right with God. I'm forgiven of my sins. I, I'm no longer striving to work somehow to be accepted by God. Do you have a faith that allows you to rest are you believing and receiving the fullness of God, grace for you? Or are you still trying to earn and deserve? I didn't pray enough. I didn't read my Bible enough. I didn't give enough. I didn't go to church enough. I didn't, you, you, all these things. I would ask kids in our Christian school that grew up in the church. They grew up in our church. They grew up in our Christian school. And they're in third, fourth, fifth grade. I would say, how do you go to heaven? They would all begin to list the things that we do to grow in our walk with the Lord. They say, go to church, give pray, serve, read your Bible. These, this is how you go to church. It's not how you go to church. None of those things are how you go to church. You believe in Jesus' finished work and love for you, what he's done, and now you're right with God. And I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I give, I serve, because those are the things that God has given us to help us grow. 
They're not for acceptance, they're for growth. And if you go through life, just like these Pharisees, with this legal deserve and earn mentality, you are gonna be a frustrated Christian that never feels like you meet, really make the grade. But faith rests. When Jesus finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's resting because he already finished it. All you have to do is fully enter into his rest by faith. If you love Jesus, you are right with God. Every morning you wake up in God's love and grace. Every night you go to sleep in God's love and grace. It's not checking your boxes to earn things. No, those things help us grow. When I pray and read my Bible and go to church, it helps me grow. I want to do those things. But for the right reasons, for growth, not for rest and acceptance in my relationship with him. It would be the pits in my marriage if uh, I just had a legal relationship with Tammy, right? If I did certain things, I would be loved. And if I don't do certain things, I would be unloved. And I would have this list. And I would just think every day, I wonder, I wonder if we're okay today. Right? I wonder if we're... What, is it all right today? Have I done enough? And, no, I've been really busy. I'm, I'm not sure what, how, how it's going. But, but love, love overrules all those things. Why do I do nice things for Tammy? There's things that Tammy likes, places she go, likes to go eat that I like to go. There's th- I know the things that Tammy likes and loves to do. And I want to do those things, not to earn her acceptance, but because I simply love her and enjoy doing that with her. See, there's a real difference. The Lord of the Sabbath wants to become the Lord of rest for your soul. So enter in by faith to the full love, grace, and acceptance that Jesus has for you. And every day you wake up with your heart free from the burdens of rules, regulations, litigation, laws, that you fall short. You are accepted in the beloved. Paul, writing to the the Colossians, he said, he said, you are complete in him. By faith, I'm complete in Jesus. Now, I have a long ways to go in his sanctifying work, but he's doing that work. But I start from ground zero of love and acceptance in him. And it's amazing how restful my soul is because I'm not trying to prove anything to God. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm simply believing and receiving. And that's the engine of faith as you move through your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for meeting with us today and all that you have for us. I pray that you would release in our hearts and our lives the faith that you want to lead us into to help us grow. I pray for the needs for each person that are here today. They just, they need a touch from you like the woman that was just declared, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made well. And Lord, there are some here in our midst today that they just want to touch the hem of your garment. They just need you to work in the specific burden that's on their heart. Lord, we don't want to leave here today without ministering to that burden that you would give them rest. If you just have something burdening your heart that you would like to give the Lord by faith right now, I just wanna encourage you to stand up where you're at. None of us know what it is. It's none of our business. We just wanna pray for you that God's spirit does a work in that. If you got a burden, you want God to break through, you want him to pray, just stand up and pray where you're at. God bless you. We'll pray for you. 
God bless you guys back there. Lord, as men and women stand up in the room, just bringing by faith the burden that's in their hearts, in their minds, Lord, thank you that you know all the details about it. Lord, as they're just standing up and handing that over to you in faith, saying, Lord, I just cast this burden upon you. Lord, would you work in it? Would you, as they rely on you and they trust you to intervene and to intercede and to do your work of wholeness and healing in this situation, to transform it, Lord, would you bring your miraculous power to this situation in their lives? Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.